Welcome to Reliability Matters, a podcast for the electronic assembly industry. Each episode covers topics related to reliability, best practices, and environmentally responsible assembly techniques with insights from experts across the electronic assembly industry. Now, here's your host, Mike Conrad. Welcome back to another episode of the Reliability Matters podcast. I appreciate you being here, and thanks so much for your support. Uh, We just crossed over the 15,000 download mark. And you know, like I said in an earlier broadcast, I was, I was celebrating at 100. I never thought we'd get much past that. So I really appreciate uh, all of your support. Thanks for all the episode suggestions and comments. Um, I, I really appreciate it. It's nice um, to get some feedback. When you sit in front of a camera, all you see are, you know, is a camera. And it's nice to know that uh, there's people out there that are listening. Today, I'm really excited about this episode. Today, I get to talk to four of my friends and colleagues in this industry. Uh, The title of this broadcast is Meet the Press. This is the second time we've done this, um, where we just talk about what's going on in the industry. And there's a lot to talk about, uh, clearly. There's some things we probably are tired of talking about and some things we'd rather talk about. And we'll try and get both of those subjects in. So let me welcome my panel today, uh, Mike Buto from Circuits Assembly, and uh, it's a double, I always forget the second magazine, Mike. Uh, there's two magazines that you're editor-in-chief of, um, Circuits Assembly and Printed Circuit Design and Fab. So um, welcome uh, to, the, to the show. Uh, and of course, yes, uh, Phil Stoughton, my friend and colleague from Scoop TV, among a thousand other uh, uh, things that he does, including writing for Forbes and, and a bunch of other magazines. Um, uh, Trevor Galbraith, uh, my my Great friend from Scotland. Uh, he's joining us from England today. Um, he's the um, uh, publisher of Global SMT and Production and a lot of various shows that you see online as well. And Eric Miskell from EMS Now. Um, I would like to think EMS stands for the Eric Miskell Show. I, if it doesn't, it's been <laughs> reappropriated for that. Um, but uh, welcome, gentlemen. Thanks for agreeing to be drafted for this episode. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Happy to be here, Mike. And we do have a global a global panel today. Mike, are, are you in the Boston area today? I am. And Phil, you're down under. You're in Australia. Is it Melbourne, Australia? Is that in, right? I am in lockdown under. Uh, locked, <laughs> lockdown under. And Trevor, <laughs> you're trapped in England at the moment? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm in Somerset, England. Somerset, England. England. And Eric, if I remember right, you're in Florida. No, I'm free in Texas here. So. Uh, oh, you're in Texas. I don't know <laughs> yes, why sir. I thought you were Florida. No. Oh, interesting. You know, red state, red state. I moved you. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, Texas, Florida is about the same. Uh, and I'm, uh, I'm on the uh, left coast out here in California. So we do have a, cool. a, a national and global perspective here. So let's start, uh, let's start talking about some of the uh, elephants in the room and try and get those out of the way and, and maybe morph into a more positive subject. Let's start with supply chain issues. You know, people say component shortages, and that's certainly part of it, but it's way more than component shortages. I know in my company, you know, we have a manufacturing company, and our inventory levels are about three times what they normally are, because normally we we try very hard to be just in time. (laughs) We're not just in time on anything now. We're, We're buying for the future. So if we have an opportunity to score a year's worth of a particular part, we buy a year's worth of that part. So our shelves are bursting with parts right now, um, just, yeah. just because of the, the challenges. We, we can't be guaranteed that it would be available next week. So we just buy and we're probably part of the problem. Uh, you know, we're, yeah, we're hoarding are, parts, right? So, 
but um, you have to keep machines going out the door. So what what are your takes on the the uh, global supply shortage? Is this a you know three more months and we should be out of it? Is this you know what's cause and effect? What's the forecast? I'll let anyone jump in. I um I polled a whole bunch of people recently uh, on LinkedIn. I did a poll. We had about three hundred votes. Uh, and most people thought it was going to last all the way through to 2022. Um, so it looks like we're in it for the long haul. It's going to take quite a long while to correct. But you're right in saying, are you part of the problem, Mike? Because that's exactly the case. What's happening is people are overordering. So there's substantial stock growing in the wrong places. So there's a risk of an inventory overhang at the end. Um, but having switched from just in time to just in case um you know everybody everybody is buying much more than or ordering a lot more than they need it's causing the ems companies a whole bunch of problems you know they've got maybe you know 100 dollars products waiting for 50 cent components to go out the door so their work in progress has gone up their cash flow requirements gone up companies that should be growing are having their growth stunted because they can't get production out of the door so they're having cash flow issues so yeah it's a it's a hell of a mess that isn't going to get fixed right away um, and it needs some better more open communication between brands EMSs component distributors component manufacturers because at the moment nobody really knows how big the problem is because people are you know either ordering so far ahead or they're double ordering um, so yeah, big problem, big problem. We can, you know, do some things with, um, redesigns, spinning up new designs, perhaps to use other devices, but, uh, uh, it's definitely going to be with us a good part through, through next year, I think. Yeah. Interesting. I think Phil's right. I think, I think this is a problem that actually started even before COVID, uh, because in 2019, there, there was uh, a situation where companies were were um, overstocking, you know, they were, they were buying in and holding inventory because they couldn't get components, you know, things like MLCCs and things like that. Um, the, the problem is, is of course, COVID's exacerbated it. Big issue, of course, was of course, there was a lot of aircraft used to fly back and forward between Asia and the United States and Europe. Uh, there's not so many because of COVID. Uh, and traditionally, these components used to, you know, come in the bellies of these aircraft. Um, that's no longer the case. So they then tried to go to the, the seaboard side of it, and uh, there's a shortage of ships. Uh, it takes two years to build a ship. <laughs> so uh, yeah. you know, there's, there's a real issue there. But then it gets even worse because we also have a labor problem, and we had a ridiculous situation just last week with 42 ships sitting off the coast of Los Angeles uh, that couldn't dock to offload because they didn't have enough workers to, to, to do the work. Uh, and that had a knock-on effect because all these ships had containers uh, and there weren't enough containers then in Asia for the workers, the dockers in Asia to be able to put on, you know, new content. So yeah. it's just a complete mess at the moment, quite frankly. Yeah, I read an article yesterday, it's funny you brought that up, about uh, the Port of LA and <clears throat> they said there was about 50 container ships out there. But the interesting thing is they said it takes about 15 days to transport these big container ships from China to, uh, or you know, any Asian port to um, the West Coast. And then it takes an average right now of 30 days just floating on anchor 
at anchor waiting to, for their turn to be unloaded. And then another 30 days before those containers make it on trucks, just wow. because of the labor shortage and you know, the, the, the backlog of, of, of work. So that's 15 days at sea, 30 days you know, in shallow anchor, another 30 days you know, after you're steaming your way back, you know, before those, those things, you know, that, that's, that's what, 75 days before yeah. uh, anything is actually on the road. And then it has to travel to wherever it's going to go to over road. It's, it's crazy. Mike, what's yeah. your take on all this, all this uh, nonsense? Well, you know, sourcing is getting interesting, right? I mean, <laughs> um, I'm less interested in probably pathologizing, you know, how we got here. And, and I'm, it's more of interest to me and is what are we going to do about it? You know, it doesn't seem to me that the component OEMs are rushing to bring more capacity online. So whereas, and I tend to agree with Trevor that the um, the lead time started going out pre-COVID, uh, but the um, things like MLCCs and, and, you know, some of the crystal stuff, you know, that's always kind of hard to come by. You know, that's, that's always a difficult thing, but it's more just everyday resistors and chip caps and things like that. When those times start going out, then you say, okay, yeah, there's something going on here. My take is that the um, the effects, right? You know, you've you've got this three year. Um, if we go to the end of 2022, it would be the longest uh, bull run for you know for component shortages that we've ever had, even more than the 99 2000 2001 run. So you know, the, people are just putting a, a stake in the ground and saying end of 22. You know, maybe I don't know. It's kind of they're kind of guessing, right? And we're all just sort of guessing there. So that's why I try to focus more on what are the actual impacts, right? So what I'm seeing is that used equipment sellers are now getting into component sourcing, you know, and that's a weird, weird thing, right? Because we're used to them going in and buying up uh, factories that are going out of business and they buy, you know, the Metro racks and the ESD lines and they get all the shelving and all that. And those, there's always parts on those, right? And what they, used, they do is they just throw all those in a dumpster. Now they're saying, shoot, I can I can make money off these parts. So they're they're you know getting into component reselling and and they're taking that stock room and they're basically putting it up all on Octopart. You know, you go to Google Maps and you look at the building, you're like, that doesn't look like a factory to me. That looks kind of more like a trailer, you know, but you can buy parts there. So the you know the counterfeit and, and what's happening is EMS guys are saying, hey, look, you know what? I got this part. I've bought racks from these guys before. Uh, you know, I, I think I know where this came from. Let's build a few boards, and if it's reliable, let's run with it. And the OEMs are saying, okay. And and so you're going to end up with no traceability. You know, yeah. lots of counterfeit parts. You know, moving into mainstream products. I mean, that's really where the mess is going to be. Right. So all this talk about about wanting to know the origins of the part and, and being able to, to see everybody who's touched it and all the rest of it, you know, that's out the window and will be for some time to come. Yeah, I think adversity and opportunity are the same sides, uh, are different sides of the same coin. And and that applies to nefarious operations yeah. as well. Um, so, you know, the, the pandemic has given uh, companies in our industry uh, a, a unique advantage uh, or opportunity, you know, in the early days of the pandemic, when everyone switched over to making ventilators and things like that, you know, that was clearly an opportunity. The fact that our industry was deemed essential very, very, very early on, like the next day after state shutdown was, you know, an opportunity. Um, but then again, you know, opportunity is a very wide, it's very widespread. And clearly the, uh, I, I worked a lot with the, um, 
on a production side with the counterfeit conference, the SMTA counterfeit conference. And mm-hmm. yeah, that business is alive and well right now. Uh, and the component <laughs> shortage only highlights that. So can I add one thing? And then I want to, i dying to hear what Eric has to say about this because his background I think is, is, you know, just goes right into this. Right. So, I mean, at least one very large distributor is at the point where they're saying, these are the parts available. What can you make with them? Right. It's like MacGyver. And so, you know, that's going to lead to respins and whatnot. And so the trickle down, right, is that, you know, the question becomes, will EMS companies start to push the OEMs to share the cost of parts, almost like a consignment model? And, you know, because otherwise that's a lot of carrying costs for EMS guys, no matter how big or small they are. And, and even for OEMs like you, Mike, right? So you're tying up a lot of capital in, in parts. Now, you get to make the decision whether you're going to redesign the board or not. Um, but... The EMS guy doesn't have that option, right? It's the OEM. They say, hey, look, you can't get this part. Let's redesign. Now the EMS guy is stuck with a, with a lot of material that may or may not be reusable inside their own factory. So who's responsible for that inventory when a board is inevitably respun? Mm, that's a good point. So let me jump in. So I generally operate from a philosophy that that business is inherently rational. It's when we add the human element that life becomes confounding. Um, and I think that proves out again with what's going on. We've touched on some of those things here, you know, and, and we'll talk more, I'm sure, about this, the labor issue right now. Clearly kind of, you know, a self-imposed, you know, issue here. Um, what you're talking about with the uh, with the uh, supply chains too, and what people are doing in the buying, and um, you know, there's a lot of people who want to just operate as a, kind of in a business as usual. I think there's people who just haven't gotten the message yet, and we see that in various ways. I talked to an auto uh, somebody in the automotive manufacturing area here recently, and he was telling me a specific example needing a MOSFET. And the one that was required was AECQ, right, for the automotive industry. Well, it wasn't available. The lead time was just outrageously long. That very same part is available as an industrial grade part. Same part, same manufacturing, same damn thing. Can't be used. Um, so that's kind of a business as usual. And I'm sure there's many more stories like that, right, where, where people are still operating within the confines of pre-pandemic Whereas the reality of the pandemic really needs to be, it needs people to kind of break out of traditional ways of doing things. Um, and uh, so, listen, I, I don't do forecasting anymore. The best I hear is this is with us through 2022. Um, you know, I think that a lot of the, the machines needed to, to increase the component, right, to increase the supply need to be manufactured too. Those need electronic parts too, right? Um, and people and to build them. You need people to build them. Yeah. So, uh, you know, there's a lot there and, you know, that's the human dynamic, I think, behind it, right? I think that the business, the, there, there's rational business, you know, it, and we can get into that more as we move forward. But uh, um, I think the EMS is doing a hell of a job right now, kind of within the confines of what they, they are challenged to, to produce with the restrictions being put on them. Um, and there's a lot of adjustments being done across, you know, not just here in the U.S., but across the globe. As we talk to the CEOs of these companies, I'm nothing but impressed by, you know, the activities of these companies. Yeah, Mike, you, you, you brought up the MacGyver example, right? We're MacGyvering <laughs> our way out of stuff. It just reminds me of that scene in Apollo 13 where one of the 
one of the people in Houston, you know, basically threw a bunch of parts on a table and said, okay, we have to solve their problem and we can only use these parts because these are the only things they have up there, right? So it's, uh, it's like Ford and GM, um, you know, they either have to keep cars on a parking lot for, for three or four months waiting for a board to come in or they, they tailor the car to not have a certain feature and, or, or reprogram another board to perform double duty. I mean, it's, it's a lot of creative thinking going on right now to keep the machine going. Um, Trevor, is that, uh, what are you seeing from a European perspective with regard to labor shortages, part shortages, you know, the, the MacGyvering of our, of our way out of it? Uh, Europeans are pretty MacGyvery as well. Yeah, yeah. A couple of things I would maybe add to the, the debate so far is, is that, unfortunately, uh, a lot of these components are manufactured in Asia. Uh, and there is evidence that some of these um, Asian manufacturers are uh, they're, they're preferring to supply or giving favorable, favorable conditions to their Asian customers ahead of their, their European and, and uh, US customers. So that's, that's a concern. Um, on the, uh, the the delivery and labor shortage, uh, it's even worse in the UK than it is in the rest of the world because one of the issues we had here recently was Brexit. Um, and as part of the, the new immigration uh, laws here, uh, a lot of the lorry drivers that used to deliver product uh, are no longer allowed to come into the country. Uh, and Boris Johnson's answer to this is, well, we need to, uh, we need to teach more drivers teach more people to drive lorries uh, well that takes time <laughs> it doesn't have to happen overnight uh, and another consequence of that of course is that the, the trucking companies have, have really had to ramp up the the, the rate of pay that they're, they're paying these people mm-hmm. uh, so so it's become a lot more attractive to be a truck driver here in the UK but uh, you know it's going to take you a few months to, to sort of go through the, the the learning process so we've got that on top of all the other issues that, that everybody else is dealing with uh, so it's 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 difficult, you know. But I think I can't see a way out of this until you know because you've got COVID in the middle of it. It depends how other countries handle the COVID crisis and get the people vaccinated, uh, and and everybody reaches a consensus and we start opening up, um, you know, um, air, air air pathways, you know, that, that we can start doing business again. Because uh, the way it's working at the moment is just terrible. You know, it's it's, it's, it's very difficult. Hmm. Phil, what's your, you do a lot of, uh, you have a lot of conversations, do a lot of interviews with uh, C-level executives. Um, one of your shows is called C-level, right? Uh, what, uh, what's your take from, you know, the, the ivory tower standpoint, you know, the, of the people that you're yeah. talking to? I'd, I'd underline what Eric said in that I think the CEOs of the EMS companies are doing an amazing job in a very challenging environment. One of the big challenges they've got is kind of reevaluating their relationship with the brands they work with. So trying to figure out how they can have an open and honest communication and say, look, we're all in the we're all in this um, we're all in this problem together. And if we work together, we can get through it. Um, because I think typically brands and EMSs have a relationship where both of them are you know, fighting for the same piece of margin. There's, there's, you know, the EMS per the EMS company has generally been the weaker in the negotiating position, um, and now everybody needs to get on side and help each other. And that's certainly a sense that I see. And the companies that are probably doing better are those that are 
that have much stronger partnerships with their customers. So are able to say to them, look, you know, open and honestly, we're, we're in this predicament. What can we do to get out of it? And we'll work together on design or we'll work together on something else. Um, the other thing I've noticed having spoken to a lot of CEOs is that the bigger the company is, the bigger the problem is. So, you know, your $50 million EMS um, seems to be doing pretty much pretty well. Um, you know, they're getting most of what they need because they need relatively small volumes. Um, they're probably not in the automotive sector. They probably don't have the same traceability pressure. Um, so they're coping better. But when you get to the large kind of 150, 200 million dollar up companies, they're they're really finding it very, 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 very difficult at the moment. And it's um, it's not getting any less challenging and they don't see any light at the end of the tunnel. Um, we do see, you know, as I say, we see people looking to looking to redesign as a solution. Um, and if you've got an extra 15 weeks on your lead time, that's plenty of time to redesign a PCB for a different component. And then we're seeing other people talking about um, this phrase designed for disruption because the component shortage is just the the current disruption and we're just one disruption after another at the moment um, and they just seem to be get, getting bigger every time so you know it's a reality so the idea that when you design a product or or you design a printed circuit board you're designing it with disruption in mind so you make sure you've got multiple sources um, you make sure you've got different component options um, you make sure you've got different um, build options in different locations so you've got a bit more resilience in the supply chain so we've moved from this really strong desire to be lean and do this whole just-in-time thing to, to doing something that is almost like the late 90s where you just buy what as much stock as you can get and you know if you can get some more stock just double order and keep going and uh, and hope for the best and we all know how badly that went around 2001 where um, there were literally billions of dollars of um, stock overhang of redundant parts so there's uh, you know there's issues there I think there's better traceability and better visibility in the supply chain now um, but there's still a lot of a lot of risk there um, but yeah I think I think they're doing a good job and I see some you know some EMS companies that are just really um you know are growing successfully are profitable at the moment there's a lot of there's a lot of m a activity so um you know the market's pretty pretty hot at the moment so you know if we can get through this i think it all bodes well i think the underlying trends are really are really quite positive yeah i agree from, from my perspective uh, which is you know i'm not quite in the thirty-six thousand foot high uh, press box view that you guys have but from my perspective kind of in the trenches um i i think there's this whole pandemic has has presented a lot of opportunity now that yeah, it's challenging opportunity great. because you know you have to find people to build it and parts to buy um but there is definitely um a lot of opportunity uh, right now and i see a lot of companies with record profits at the moment and i think part of it is they're busy and part of it is they're not spending any money on travel. And, and yeah. uh, you know, they, that's a huge part of the travel budget. And that concerns me a little bit as we get out of this pandemic. Have the bean counters at these companies benefited 
and enjoyed the savings from travel, realizing the sky didn't fall, you know, that they're, they're making a lot of money and they're not, you know, they probably don't see any, any downside to it. There probably is a downside, but they don't see it. Uh, when things become safe again to, you know, go out to the real world and, and, and act as normal, are the, are the accountants going to say, no, we're not going to do those shows. We're not going to go to those conferences. We're not going to send you around the world to, to sign a contract and shake a hand and kiss a baby and all the things, you know, that we travel for. Um, I'm just wondering if, if the, the savings have now polluted the way uh, corporations are going to look at travel and look at sales techniques and if, if Zoom's going to be with us for a lot longer than we think. Maybe you know, I, I, would, I would hope that they have not, no company is going to elevate their CFO to be running everything and those decisions because, you know, the two most risk averse people in any organization are your CFO and your, your head HR person, right? So uh, we need to leave those decisions to the, to the business operations people because managing risk is an inherent part of running a business, right? So, um, so you know i think people are still challenged we were talking before we started the the recording here today about the the impact on shows and i think that the you know it's hard to do you know it's easy for us to do interviews and talk to people you know using the, this medium it's very hard to for somebody to roll out their their latest whiz bang machine and let and get people come up and engage with prospects and kick the tires and demonstrate that's very hard to do over this this platform so um you know those that those have to be weighed within the current environment, but hopefully that's not bean counters doing the weighing on this one is my point. So Mike, you were going to say something. I jumped in on you. Yeah. I mean, once the pendulum starts going, you know, we have this tendency to um, think it's always going to go in that direction. And, you know, all we need to do is look back to 99, 2000, 2001, as, as Phil alluded to. And, and we've seen this movie before, um, you know, the, you know, we none of this predicts the extraordinary event, right? So we think like everything's going in this direction, there's a demand and all the rest of it. But then what happens when, you know, I, forgive me for saying this, but, you know, a major terrorist event, event or, you know, a war breaks out or some, you know, major disruption in the supply chain, you know, a, a, a typhoon hits Japan or something like that. And, and all of a sudden everything goes on pause, right? And then you start saying, well, okay, you know, maybe maybe we're not going to keep going on like that way forever. And I think the same thing's going to happen here. You know, the, the people ultimately are social creatures and they're going to want to be back out among their peers. And so um, the, the euphoria of these great balance sheets will wear off once we get another few quarters down the road and 2000 is no, or sorry, 2020 is no longer the year that we're baselining against. And so, you know, you, you we're looking good right now because you're comparing it to the first recessionary quarter we'd seen in 12 years. You know, we don't get that every year, right? We don't get that every quarter. That's going to change. Um, I really think that the, you know, the people are going to want to get back out, um, uh, and that the what I would call the, the the current trend toward hey we can do this via Zoom and that you know is is really going to wear off. Do you think yeah. there's a hybrid potential though? Do you think it's one of those environments where people are just questioning everything and saying, you know, I, when I look at the trade show calendar for this year and I talk to Pete, to um, 
CMOs at, at electronic companies about what they what they did this year, what they didn't do, and what they're going to go back to. Some of them have said to me, "Hey, I can't wait to get back to that trade show. We generate a lot of a lot of leads there." And others have said to me about other events, "I'm glad we don't have, didn't have to go to that one this year because <laughs> because it wasn't it wasn't a great show for us." So I think if there's a if shows are good. You know, I think like you look at a Productronica, which is a super strong brand that's been around forever. It's going to have a tough show this year. There's no doubt about it. But it's going to have a show probably. And it didn't have to have a show last year. So it was very, very lucky on that basis. Um, and the chances are in two years it'll bounce back pretty solidly. But you look at some of the smaller shows um, that people have gone to year after year and have kind of been loyal to without really knowing whether they were really good bang for buck, they're really questioning those. And whether it's the bean counter is putting pressure on the CMO or whatever it is, they're definitely questioning it and they're definitely looking at webcasts and other things that they've done and what, they, what they've been able to generate. And I absolutely agree with you, Mike. I think with a trade show, you know, there is a lot of fringe benefits that are beyond the measurable deliverables. I've never been to a trade show that I regretted going to because there's always that chance meeting in the aisle or there's that contact you come away with that becomes a friend or an important business colleague in the future. So you never know what you're going to get and that doesn't happen in these virtual environments. But I do think people are questioning everything. Yeah, the CFOs are going to question stuff because it's their job, but the budget managers yeah. of every department, you know, the, the, the head of every department is already questioning that stuff, right? So, I mean, yeah. we see it at a lower level even than the CFO, and, and that's their job. We expect that. Um, I guess I keep going back to, like, we'll use Productronica, for example. I mean, you and I remember when, uh, 20 years ago, when the fabrication halls took up, you know, almost three halls on their own. Mm -hmm. Now it's less than one, right? Because it just wasn't a good show to go to for fabricators. So PCB fab, yeah. Right, yeah, bare board fab. And, and that's what happens. So, so there's, um, uh, you know, and I've been to shows as well as all of the rest of you where people say, you know, they're, they're, they're looking up and down the aisles and there's nobody there. And they're like, you know, I, I'm never coming back here again. And then 12 months later, hey, there they here are. you are. You know, like, <laughs> because there's a gravity. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, that's just the human nature of it. And I just, I don't see that changing so easily. Well, that's, yeah, I think the good, good news. I think the good gravity will survive and the bad gravity might not. Yeah. <laughs> well, you talk about if the, you know, the tangible, less tangible, you know, attributes of a show. And, you know, obviously the less tangible, the measurable is the networking. I met all of you without exception. I met all of you at shows, right? Yeah. We would not have crossed paths. Otherwise, I would have read you, I would have watched you, oh. but we wouldn't have met if it weren't for shows. And um, I used to mow his lawn. Well, we, we don't talk about that. That's that was the judge made you do it. You know, that was community service, Mike. You know better. But but you did learn your lesson. He learned his lesson. Yeah, True. he had to mow my lawn for a year, and he had to work in this industry for life. That was <laughs> that's you uh, must that's have the way it works. Really so we we've. we've <laughs> We've successfully I'm taken our audience and his laundry, but because it just never that. <laughs> now he didn't he didn't commit that heinous of a crime, so he didn't have to do the laundry. Um, we've taken our audience and put them into a funk talking about all the things I thought we were only going to talk about for six months last year, and you know obviously it's still relevant today. But let's yeah. change the tone a little bit uh, on the remaining uh, time for the show. 
and talk about everything not COVID, labor shortage, part shortage, things like that. Um, there are exciting things going on in our industry every day. And sometimes that news is just overshadowed by, you know, the doom and gloom and the panic and, you know, the beat the drum stuff. But um, uh, I'm curious, you, in your work, in your line of work, you talk to an awful lot of companies, a lot of engineers, a lot of uh, executives. Uh, you you kind of have your ear to the track and you know what, what cool trains are coming down the track. Uh, what excites you about our industry right now? What types of innovations do you see uh, coming our way? Uh, what companies are, you know, <laughs> literally and figuratively making headlines at the moment? And um, you'll share your, your take on the world from your unique perspective. Okay. Well, I think, I think um, one of the companies I'm finding quite exciting at the moment is uh, uh, a California company called Novacentrics, uh, which is, they really come from the flexible PCB side, but they're using photonic um, reflow uh, to, to basically cure uh, components in, in milliseconds and, uh, on a much smaller footprint than, than um, a, a traditional reflow oven. Uh, and it takes that part of the process from being the slowest part of the, the, the production line to the fastest machine on the line. So, uh, you know, they're working on trying to get this to work in normal FR4 boards and that type of environment. And if they're successful in doing that, that's going to be a real game changer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I've seen their I've seen their videos and things like that. It, yeah, it does look very interesting. It looks very promising. It's yeah. like instant reflow, like boom, it goes yeah. from solid to liquid to solid in seconds. Right. Yeah, that's right. that is interesting. I know they're applications are a little bit limited as you said right now but if they could if they could expand that out to more traditional reflow applications i think they they definitely that's a disruptive force that's a disruptive technology if it it can be rolled out to you know mainstream applications for sure yeah i think what what i'm seeing at the moment which is really interesting is a huge amount of of really interesting innovation in terms of technology in terms of business models um and particularly in terms of digital transformation, people looking at kind of factory operating systems and those kind of things. Um, but at a high level, I think what's really interesting is there's a lot of VC funding going into that. There's a lot of capital around for innovation in manufacturing and innovation in supply chain, both at the um, kind of series A and seed funding level, but also at the IPO and curiously at the SPAC level so there's a lot of companies in our sector and in the manufacturing sector generally raising a lot of money you look at the isometry um, manufacturing as a service business and the the spac that took them to the market and valued them at three billion um, there's a bright machine spac that's on its way through that values them at something like 1.4 um, so there's a lot of money swashing around in the industry for the right kind of the right kind of innovation, be it angel funding for seed startups or, you know, really strong Series A funding. Um, and there have been some really successful exits for some of those funds recently. So that kind of puts some more energy into the market. So I think it's a, it's an exciting time to be innovating in the manufacturing space. Very good. Mike or uh, Eric, any, any, uh, yeah, any, there's, there's lots going on, Mike. Um, you know, hydrogen fuel cells on PCBs, uh, integrated memory solutions to meet the chiplet requirements, 
uh, with uh, electric vehicles come some really high power uh, boards, you know, 48 volts and higher. Um, same with solar panels, which, you know, I mean, a lot of people have them on their houses. Um, but, you know, you think about like the IoT stuff. I mean, mo mo much of those boards uh, are they're the run of the mill four layer boards. Um, and there's a lot of that. So, you know, the, there's just kind of really it's bifurcated. Um, there's a factory of the future. I know IPC and Matt Kelly over there is working very hard on that. Uh, you know, if you look at what USI is doing over in China, um, it's very interesting, uh, you know, where they've gone from hundreds of employees down to, you know, just a couple uh, to run these boards. But it works very well when they have, you know, high volume uh, SIP modules like USI is building. Very few companies have what I would say are the financial or the personnel resources pre present to pull that off. Um, the real innovation, I think, is kind of what Phil alluded to, which is, you know, how the finance guys are managing their businesses and maintaining their cash flow in the wake of this potentially disastrous component situation. Yeah. You know, listen, I agree with everything that's being said. I think the automation and, uh, and the digitalization, you know, clearly is, is a lot happening in that area. And on the Automation, it's just, you know, especially those back end functions, right? They're traditionally more, more, more labor intensive, um, you know, but what I've really appreciated seeing and in discussions so far this year have been with the, again, it's on the human side, it's on the managerial, uh, how to manage a workforce through this crisis, how they're handling that, how they're handling remote workers now. I think that's an ongoing challenge. Traditional management styles, you know, are, are used to people right there within their factory they can do. All of a sudden you have people who are working remotely. You know, you're not managing time anymore, you're managing to results. And so I think, you know, what companies and what, what uh, I've been nothing but impressed by the management staffs and uh, personnel I've spoken to who are, who are who are adapting to these these new realities that'll probably be with us for years to come, and um, uh, so that to me has been kind of a uh, a lesser noticed kind of but but yet very important uh, aspect of this. I interviewed a, a, a director of manufacturing for a midsize contract manufacturer um, recently, and there he he was all no nonsense ex-military guy just you know he was like joe friday he he was a dragnet you know it's like just the facts ma'am and but it was a fascinating interview because he completely believes and has demonstrated that when you have a high level of automation and a high level of testing then his factory can compete with any Asian factory, any Chinese factory, Malaysian factory, Vietnamese factory, wherever, um, uh, board for board for board for board. Even though some countries have, you know, the benefit of a very low labor cost, um, they don't rely on as much labor here in, in his factory particularly. And he's got the testing down to the point, uh, they invested millions of dollars in, in equipment, and uh, particularly for a midsize CM. And... Uh, the result is, you know, virtually zero escapes and uh, extremely optimized factory. He even designed his factory floor, his flow to be in a figure eight design as opposed to more of a linear design. Because in, in his example, he says, if you're right-handed and I put a pen on the left side of your desk, that's an inefficiency. I mean, that's 
the, the micro level of efficiency that he's, he's going for. And his belief is North America can compete with any country if we put the resources and the technology in, you know, in the right focus um, and invest in that so that labor is not the deciding factor because technology costs just as much over there as it costs here. You know, if you're going to buy a you know, $200,000 Co. Young machine here, they're going to spend about that much there too, if not more. So uh, what's your take on that? Do you think that you know, the pandemic and, uh, and a lot of recent events have, have brought up the subject of reshoring again? And you know, that was kind of a, a louder drumbeat maybe a year ago than, than I hear today, but I think it's still... I still hear it. Uh, what's your take on reshoring? What's your take on, on North American manufacturing and its um, survivability into the future? And, and maybe, maybe does it have a chance to gain dominance again as it was, you know, 50, 60 years ago? Yeah. Can I jump in real quick? First of all, I hate that term. And I've said this over and over. Reshoring, it's such a political term. And I know everybody loves it. It's not a, it, it, it's not a, a, a strategic term, though. The strategy, the proven strategy is regionalization, build in region for region. The reshoring is that every this hope that somehow all this stuff that went to China is going to come back and we're all going to have, you know, happy days again here in the United States or wherever. <laughs> That's simply not going to happen. What's going to happen? Exactly I can smell the apple pie in the oven right now, Eric. I can yeah. smell it. It's just... Um, it's exactly what your, your your gentleman was saying. They're going to they're going to be automated facilities. These are that's the only way we're going to compete, right? We're not going to compete by putting thousands of people in factories and and creating a Foxconn South China facility in Austin, Texas, right? This is these are going to be highly automated, uh, low touch, and which means it's going to require a higher degree of technical competence for the people who are working within that. Um, you know, it's not going to be just bringing in a bunch of people and teaching here. You put this on there, and it slides down. And you know, it's this is it's it's a higher level, and and that's just the maturation of the industry and the evolution of the industry. It was inevitable, and China is starting to have that as well. The problem becomes the supply chain, right? We're still, you know, we can do all this stuff here, but where are we getting the parts? Uh, Asia. Uh, even if we develop all these great foundries over here and do semiconductors, um, where's the packaging and tests going to happen? Asia, <laughs> right? Uh, where's the, where, where are the PCB boards being made? Asia. So, um, you know, we, I think we need a more holistic view of this than just the, the factory floor and putting pieces on, on boards and putting parts together. I agree with Eric that, that reshoring is a, almost a partisan term now it's a, it's been politicized so i, I get that um it's it's a combination of patriotism and and nostalgia from you know days gone by um but it is it is a common drumbeat at least in in the united states mm -hmm. trevor and phil in australia and in the uk is there a similar uh march and mantra toward you know patriotism and you know getting back to the good old days when you know, when, when cars were made in our country and electronics were made in our countries, uh, is that the same in Europe and, and uh, down under? Well, in the UK, we're certainly, um, the, the government has, has uh, put in place uh, quite a lot of funding for uh, high-tech high development. And they are uh, uh, pursuing a lot of um, high-tech manufacturing and things like that. So there's lots of money around for it. Uh, 
in, in, in Europe, you know, there are pockets. Every country is a little bit different. Um, but uh, I agree with what uh, Eric said. I mean, I think, uh, you know, companies are very capable of being able to do this technically. Uh, but the, the issue really at the end of the day is, is the supply chain. Uh, and how do you take that risk out of the supply chain? Um, and I think there has to possibly be some regionalization uh, of getting more of the parts, more you know, not just the chips, but you know maybe more of the PCB manufacturing, more of the the other uh, supporting parts done regionally. Whether that's in Eastern Europe or whether it's in Southern Mexico, I don't know. But I think there has to be, and that sort of initiative really has to be government driven, uh, or you know, it's 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 uh, uh, that's the way I see it. Hmm. It's curious, isn't it? Um, I, you know, I, first of all, I'd, I'd say that down under, very little manufacturing. Uh, proximity to China means that we buy just about it. Australia buys just about everything from uh, from Asia. It's pretty much in the same time zone. Um, I only have one client in Australia, and they have a rare earth mine in Tennessee. So. Uh, my experience of the Australian uh, Australian manufacturing industry is somewhat limited, but every government in the world wants to use manufacturing as part of its recovery. Um, so every government in the world is is singing from the same songbook. There's the same mantra. Um, a lot of them believe that automation is a key to. If they don't have low costs, they believe that automation is their key to leveling the play, playing field. Um, it's the key to better quality and, you know, as you say, Mike, reliability matters. So getting better quality is an important part of it. Um, so I do think there's an opportunity with innovation. It requires a huge amount of investment and that can result in a more regionalized, um, a more regionalized manufacturing ecosystem, which I actually think is a great thing. Shorter supply chains are just better for the environment. You know, the fact that there aren't all these planes flying around and all these ships full of goods moving around the world um, is is actually great for sustainability. And, you know, if we can if we can get back to much shorter supply chains and still get the products we want and, you know, maybe we'll have to pay a little bit more for them. But I think perhaps we're going to have to live with that. Um, yeah. And I think then I think that would be a great thing. But don't think that the U.S. has thought of this and nobody else has. Everybody else has thought of, of it. You know, the U.S. talked about putting a, um, I think they talked about putting something like 20 billion or so into semiconductor. And in the same week, I think um, South Korea had, had announced about five times that going into their semiconductor industry. Um, so it's going to be the same. It's going to be the same everywhere. And I don't believe the US is ahead of the rest of the world in terms of factory automation. Um, and, you know, to be honest, I think probably China is one of the countries that's investing a lot in automation, a lot in factory autonomy, a lot in AI driven factory um, automation, um, and is has a lot more graduate engineers, a lot more skills that Eric was alluding to that are going to be appropriate for those factories of the future. Um, so I think it's really challenging. I think what you what is ideal is to have consumers that want to buy products that are, ma are made closer to them. 
and companies that want to manufacture using shorter supply chains. And if we can do that, we get a regionalized model where the US maybe makes, makes for the US with the help of Mexico and Canada maybe, or Costa Rica or, or wherever else. Europe has some low cost manufacturing in, in Eastern Europe and it has some very, very high tech manufacturing in Germany and Switzerland that is very economic, particularly at the high, um, high reliability, uh, high quality, very demanding product end of the market. Um, and Asia will do the same. And, you know, Asia has benefited because it does have that low cost labor, labor force, but low cost labor is what they use to kick the door in. They've kept that door open with logistics and an awesome supply chain and ridiculously long term commitment to their industrial policy, which you can do if you don't have elections. Yeah, right. Mike, do you uh, do you agree with Eric's take on you know let's let's dump the word yeah, reshoring? Mean, be a little bit of a hot mess of an answer, but I mean the technology always progresses. Okay, so automation, even in low cost areas, always wins out. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, when I first started going to China more than twenty years ago, the Chinese government liked the term semi-automated. They didn't like the term automated because they felt semi-automated meant workers and meant jobs. Um, but, you know, go find the factory of, of any size or note in, in Southeast Asia or China that's that's building things without a pick and place machine, you know, where they're assembling everything, you know, components on hand and hand soldering. I mean, they don't do that. Right. So even if it's low cost, they're still automated. Um, the uh, you know, I, I use this analogy um, this past summer. I took my family out to Illinois. And so it's the first plane ride that we've all taken since COVID. Um, and we had a car rented in advance because we knew that they were scarce. And Chicago O'Hare Airport has a dedicated car rental terminal. And there's probably 20 or so different car rental companies there. Only one had a self-serve user kiosk. Everyone else still required the customers to use the counter. So we waited in line forever just to get our car. Totally unnecessary. Companies should be looking really, really hard, no matter where they're at, at ways to make their customer experience faster and easier. And that's really true in our industry. Um, but for the most part, we aren't. So, you know, that's going to make it easier for the guys who want to disrupt this industry to do so. And if you look at the history of disruption, it almost always comes from outside the industry. So we talked a little bit way back about, um, you know, printed electronics and things like that and, you know, the micro factory really. And, you know, I'm not saying that that's going to be the, the answer to everything. It's certainly not. But there are there will be somebody that comes along and says, wow, you know, these guys are doing things. So you, you would never draw this up on paper today. You know, if you had these resources and these problems and, and these, um, uh, you know, this amount of money, this is the, the largest industry in the world is electronics manufacturing. So, so, you know, instead of trying to turn the airship, the, the, the aircraft carrier, we're just going to, you know, create some whole totally different vehicle. And, and, you know, they're going to, somebody's going to come along and do what Uber did to the taxi industry. And lo and behold, you know, the rest of us are going to be like, damn, I wish I thought of that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very the, good. Downs the downside to automation is you're talking about it, Mike, of course, is what do we do with all these people who, you know, who, you know, used to have those jobs that automation is replaced. So I guess, you know, we better figure that out or we got to bring back war and pestilence to kind of manage it. <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, what people, right? The U.S., you know, the, you know, the, the we've always, always, always in this industry had a labor shortage. Yeah. You know, we've never, you know, never been able to find, even when, you know, in 2007, 2008, you know, in the recession, mm-hmm. um, we never could find enough of the right people to do the jobs that we needed them to do. There's a mismatch in the U.S., and I'm presuming in Europe as well, um, between the skills that are needed by engineering and, and industrial manufacturers and what high schools and colleges produce in terms of work-ready labor. Yeah. Hmm. And, and that no doesn't argument. exist in the same way in, in, in Asia. Yeah. yeah I think by the way, I was talking about the labor force, even at a McDonald's, right? You go in, these are entry-level things. It's all kiosks now, right? So we're moving all the about the guys at the car rental desk? Yeah, the guys at the car rental desk who had a job, and that was his, now he's being replaced by a kiosk. That's what I was referring to is those things where automation is, is becoming so prevalent in everything. So yeah, I think I'd like right. to replace that guy at the car rental desk or the kiosk. <laughs> <laughs> Even better, I'd like to just have the app like, you know, like I don't know why everybody doesn't do what Hertz does, right? You know, you just you know, you gotta you, you land, they know that you've landed, they you get the boom, I'm here, you know, my car's waiting in stall number fifty two or whatever, and you go right to it. And there's yeah. no reason why, you know, but that's just a better customer experience, right? That's where we we have to get as an industry as well. I'm not just saying I have the answer as to how we get there, but it's got to be that plug and play, that that predictive and user friendly. You know, real quick, we have to we have to wrap up uh, very quickly, but um, one hey, point. Not, let's keep going. Let's keep going. Well, we don't have to wrap up. I mean, we can go forever, right? Our, our, Come on, it's, it's like, you know, midnight Phil's time. I'm sure all of our, it's I know it's, it's, it's uh, what, it's two in the morning. It's after two in the morning for Phil, right? It's already Saturday morning. Yeah. yeah it's the weekend. You it's the weekend. What are you complaining about, yeah, right? I love talking to you early at the weekend. But the, the um, you know, we, we won't have time to go down this rabbit hole too deeply, but I think that uh, U.S., I'll speak for the U.S., I think every other country can, can do this too, Um I think we need to recalculate the education model in most countries mm-hmm. that we put so much emphasis on a you know four-year degree or or more uh we're putting kids two hundred thousand dollars in debt and then they get entry-level engineer jobs you know for not enough money to cover that debt i think we need way more trade skills in this country technician level skills which may not require a four-year degree and two hundred thousand dollars in education expenses you know i think we need to train plumbers and carpenters and um technicians of various sorts at trade schools you can do a one-year trade school get a job as a journeyman plumber and and you know start off at sixty thousand a year and and maybe open your own business or maybe come into the workforce uh running equipment on a uh, ems production line uh you know without having to be an MBA or a, or a PhD, I think we, we're losing a lot of our potential workforce for decent, well-paying jobs, you know, in the chase for this magic, you know, sea um, level spot. And not everyone's going to be, you know, the, the boardroom is pretty small compared to the, the rest of the workflow. The ratio is tremendous. And, you know, we, we, need, uh, we need cooks, we need chefs, we need, you know, busboys, we need bartenders, probably more bartenders, but we need all that in, in our industry, you know, well, figuratively speaking. And I, don't know. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. I mean, trying to get a tradesman here at the moment is impossible. Uh, I mean, they, they are booked up months in advance. Uh, you know, you literally having to make an appointment to get an electrician to come and see you in six weeks time. It's ridiculous. Uh, and it's because every society needs 
you know, the, the an infrastructure of plumbers, carpenters, etc., electricians, uh, and they're all going to, you know, to college to get an ology, um, uh, which is another point. I mean, some of these people are going to college to take up degree courses that are absolutely useless. Uh, so there should be better guidance given to some of these these kids because they come out with a pile of debt uh, and and not no you know no job to help uh, repay it. So there's definitely a rethink needed. Yeah, I would say the the added benefit of getting more kids out of universities, at least in the United States, is to minimize their exposure to all these asinine ideas that have come out of academia. <laughs> there we go. We open the door. Causing, <laughs> that are all causing social problems across this country. I mean, it, don't get me going, but that would be a, certainly an added benefit to all of this. Is you know exposure to people who've never done something in their lives, but you know reside in academia and think. You know, so. Um, but other than that, you know, um, <laughs> I think what you're saying, listen, this country, just like what Trevor was saying before about the lorry drivers in, in the UK, you know, we have we have our part in this country, right? Truck drivers, we need thousands of them, right? Um, you know, meanwhile, there's a self-imposed problem that the government were paying people. It's more lucrative to stay home, right? Plus, we have the the uh, the moratorium on uh, on the mortgage payment and, and the rental payment and stuff. So the it's very hard. I mean, there's there's a lot of jobs here that need to be filled, and it's self-imposed stupidity by the government level with, with all these plans, well-intentioned, I'm sure, that are uh, resulting in these problems that we they're going to need to work out of. So, well, it's long been said: the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> yep. Mike, any any take on that? The the educational yeah, yeah, front. I mean, business, business can't complain that that government is the problem, and then look to government for a solution. Okay, there's just, you know, that doesn't work, right? That's incongruous. Um, second is that there's always some tension between um, what, you know, businesses and industries, which are, you know, changing, um, want from uh, high school or college graduates and what the high school and college graduates themselves or the students really um, uh, know about themselves. I mean, we, we all have kids. Um, I think all of your kids are, are grown, like out of college. Um, if I, if I'm correct, you know, my, my oldest one just started, right? So, you know, he's 18 and, you know, he's got some vague notion of what he might want to do, but there's no way that out of high school, he could have just simply gone into the workforce. He doesn't have the ability or the skills and, and, you know, he doesn't really even know what he wants to do. So to consign yourself at an early age, uh, when you still are trying to figure out who you are and what you're interested in to a particular industry or particular, um, uh, you know, job function might be premature. Um, however, uh, you know, you know, the, everybody is right in, in, in when they're describing a world where there's more emphasis placed on uh, ideas, you know, or, or thinking for the sake of thinking, as opposed to developing true analytical skills, because it's the latter that people need to come out of college with. So it's, it's one thing to know, you know, everything there is to know about Chaucer, right? But, you know, that don't build an iPhone, um, you know, and yet Apple hires lots of English majors, you know, because the folks, you know, they, they, they figure out where they can put them, right? And they need the bodies, but you still need to um, have people that have good analytical skills. And the, the, the programs of colleges that, that stress that, I think, are the ones that are more in line with tomorrow's labor force, really even today's labor force. Hmm. Interesting. 
Maybe last... maybe we should do the same as Switzerland and have two year conscription after high school. You know, then you you, you grow up fast and you then you uh, have a better idea of what you want to do with your life. <laughs> yeah, go to Israel, just go on a kibbutz and. Uh... <laughs> right. <laughs> same thing. You know, go go and discover yourself. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm getting at. Right. So what do they call that in Australia, Phil? A walk around? What is that? Yeah, walk about. Yeah, right? walk about. Walk about. Right? Yeah. yeah, you yeah. just wander off. You just wander off into the bush, and you come back when you feel like it. Maybe in a year, maybe not at all. There's a lot of stuff out there that'll that'll kill you. So uh, a, ba a baby <laughs> took my dingo. Oh, no, dingo took my baby. <laughs> So well, Eric, a walk around is what I do at my house every day, trying to find my damn phone. Because oh, yeah. <laughs> it's here. Do you know how many times, how many times a day my wife will go, I lost my phone. Can you call it? Most of my <laughs> phone calls, if I went through the, the history, it's all calling my wife at home one from second. home. <laughs> yeah. You know, oh, there it is. Yeah, there it is. Or we get in the car. Oh, I think I left my phone. I can't find it in my purse. Like, call it. There it is. It's a... Yeah, that's. Uh, yeah, I hope she's okay. not a fan of the show, Mike, for your benefit. So. Oh well, clearly not. <laughs> clearly not. Yeah, clearly not. Okay, last Never last last question. Last question. Uh, we're all you know smart sages now. We've all gone through you know a, a historic pandemic and and all the different um, side effects of it. What have we learned? What lessons have we learned? If if you were in charge of the economy, the, the, the if you were the president of your country or the prime minister of your country, um, knowing what we know now, armchair quarterbacking completely, what what changes would we have made, or would would we have done exactly what we have done? You know, what have we learned? This is a chance to redo history. Yeah. So, you know, my sense is that we, whatever lessons we learned, we are going to revert um, in short order to the the prior um, our prior process, right? Like, for example, right now, companies are, are placing orders 12 months out um, for, you know, so the EMS guys have, have a window that they've, they've never had before. You know, they've got great visibility. Um, we're going to lose that, you know, once this is all kind of blown over. And the lessons that we should have learned, I think, are going to be fleeting. So uh, what I think should happen is OEMs, and sorry for, you know, I'm going to offend some people here, but OEMs should look harder at bringing assembly back in-house. Uh, I think they have to. And the idea that manufacturing companies will happily share all the access to their internal systems with outside customers and vendors, um, you know, that's only going to last until the first well-publicized hack. So, you know, the, the you know, this you know, window into the factory and vice versa. And you can see down to the line level and the component level and all the rest of that stuff is only going to work until, you know, some bad actor, you know, whether it's, you know, I'm not going to name countries, but we know who they are or just, you know, some, some other competitive company. Decides, Let's put them in alphabetical you know, order. Let's start with C. Yeah. Right. They're going to figure out who's building for whom. And it's not that hard. To know that and they're going to break into that assembler system and then from there they're going to have all the information that they need to duplicate the product or just trample wreak havoc all over the assembly line and you know there's no reason they couldn't do that to the fabricator as well but they'd learn less because they wouldn't have access to the bomb and things like that so i mean i truly think this is my wild ass guess but i truly think that oems are going to wake up and realize that you know, forget the manufacturing flow advantage for a moment where they can go from design to, to assembly, you know, more seamlessly because they're all on the same relative roof. 
But just for the sake of supply chain management and for IP security, they are often better off building in-house. And you know, Apple kind of sort of already does this, right? You know, it's Foxconn plants aren't technically Apple plants, but they may as well be. And we're already kind of seeing this work in the other direction on the grandest scale of all. I mean, Foxconn is becoming more like an OEM every day. So, you know, if anybody can get that aircraft carrier to turn, if any single company can do it, that's Foxconn. I did find a good tagline to advertise the show. Mike Butoh's wild ass guess. That's the, <laughs> to quote to quote to. That's that's it. We've got it. We've got it. How about you, uh, Trevor? What's your what's your uh, take on? Oh gosh, on- my, my takeaway from from the pandemic is um, it's probably not going to be very popular. But um, I would think that uh, we need to get a, a better handle on um, the track tracing control apps, uh, so that next time round uh, we we uh, don't have to go through all the lockdowns and ridiculous things that we've had to go through and the, the disruption to business. Uh, because there's nothing sure this is going to happen again sometime, and it might be a lot more virulent next time around. So um, I honestly think uh, the way that Taiwan did it um, was, was, I think, the best model that I saw. Uh, and, you know, we should get ahead of the game and be ready for it next time. Eric, uh, you're the king of the world right now. What do you nah. do differently? Well, first of all, I do think Canada is offended that you wanted to stay at the start of the seas there. So um, <clears throat> with your ranking of countries, you know, I, I, I that's, a, that's a good point. Well, let's just eliminate <laughs> Canada from my thought process. They're okay, clearly so. not anywhere near the top of that list. So, I'll take a little different angle on this kind of, I think, especially, and I'll speak mostly for business in the United States, you know, the prominence of, of kind of the, the shareholder model and that, that that rose to prominence here, I think has been kind of started to be questioned over the last few years anyway. And there's a return to kind of the whole stakeholder idea where it's, you know, stakeholders, all of them, right? Stakeholders are customers, suppliers, employees, investors, hell, even the communities in which these companies operate, right? They're all stakeholders in the success of that business. Years ago, and maybe we have Milton Friedman to thank for this, you know, the whole uh, the whole shareholder theory became rose in prominence, right? Everything that a company does has to be for the benefit of those shareholders, of those owners, you know, primarily. And that impacted a lot of things, that, you know, frankly, that we've touched on here today. You know, the ability to invest in, in, in new equipment, in your own company is impacted, those decisions, at least, that decision-making process. How you're hiring, right? How you're rewarding people, all of those things become. So I see an outcome of this, I think, as, as, as a much needed kind of return uh, and a, to more of a stakeholder where, where we're looking at a more balanced view of the business rather than just, you know, everything's for the benefit of the shareholders. I know Wall Street loves that, um, but I think the outcome of this pandemic is that it's it's going to be much more holistic moving forward. King yeah. Phil. I think CEOs have had to take that stakeholder approach, Eric, so you're absolutely right there. Completely agree with Trevor on the thing of um, track and trace, and that kind of leads me to my conclusion that I regularly have, which is, whilst technology is often the problem, I think it can definitely be the solution. So having more visibility into the supply chain through technology, having more visibility into managing things like the COVID outbreak with technology. Um, And it's been fascinating to see the way countries have approached it. We're in 
a very unique situation here in Australia where we're only just getting to around about a thousand deaths for the whole pandemic, um, which is a very low number, but we can't go more than 10 kilometers from our home and we're in lockdown because our vaccination rates are low and our vac vaccination rates are low because not many people have had COVID. Um, so there hasn't been any, any urgency there. So right now we're trading with governments around the world. We just got 4 million from 4 million doses of Pfizer from the UK. Thank you, Trevor, for sending those over. We appreciate that. Um, we got a million from Singapore. We got a whole lot from Poland that they didn't need. And we're going to give them back when they're ready for their third or fourth booster. So, um, that's kind of resolving that. And it's been fascinating to see the way different governments deal with it. But, you know, I, I always go to this. This I wrote a piece ages ago that was uh, digital transformation is the answer. Now, now what's the question? And I still firmly believe that we can solve a, a whole bunch of this stuff with with much, much better visibility into the supply chain. And I think that would help with, you know, with the current crisis and the potential crisis we're going to have in 18 months time when we've all got four times as much inventory as we need. Um, so, yeah, I think it's been fascinating to see the whole thing play out. It's been fascinating to see what people can dip, can manage with and, and can't manage with. You know, I, I'm, I miss trade shows and I quite look forward to possibly being at Apex, um, but I miss my kids more. So I'm much, I'm, you know, I'm much more keen to fly to London to see my son or Barcelona to see my daughter. Uh, and, you know, what the hell with the trade shows? I'm not so bothered about those. So. Um, Absolutely. Same here. I'm, I'm, I'm missing my grandkids that are in the States, you know. Uh, yeah. So it's, uh, it's much more about people. It's much more about stakeholders, Eric. Not shareholders. You're damn right. Well, great insight, gentlemen. Um, I really appreciate this conversation. Uh, I look forward to this. We'll have to make this a quarterly event. I think we did this uh, about six months ago or so. So maybe first quarter of uh, 2022, um, maybe let uh, uh, SMT AI and PCB West and, and uh, uh, Apex and you know, Prototronica uh, be in our rearview mirror and then we can talk again and we can see what the state of the industry is and if we're hopefully hopefully a few more container ships have been un unloaded <laughs> by then and uh, we'll see uh, we'll see where our industry is uh, I, I really appreciate your insight and and all that you guys do to keep uh, the you know the, the our customers our mutual customers and colleagues in this industry informed um, I, I appreciate the the work uh, uh, Trevor does with uh, all the video interviews and, of course, uh, Phil and Eric uh, doing the, the same type of thing, um, slightly different subjects. But uh, I appreciate all that information coming out and Mike's uh, PCB chat and, um, you know, that high level of editorial integrity that keeps, you know, the magazine very technical and, and all of that. So I appreciate all that you guys do and the contributions you make in this industry and the knowledge that you have and the insight that you have. It's, it's, uh, it's very impressive. And our industry is better off with, with uh, you guys in this industry uh, than it would be without it. So uh, you can't go anywhere. It's a life sentence, as we talked about earlier. <laughs> Like <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly we appreciate you too mike all right well thanks yes, uh, yeah, yeah we appreciate what you do too we do we think you do a great job actually you know uh, yeah, i do at least yeah 
it's it's only a great job because I have great guests. Otherwise, I'm just the stooge that asks the questions. But uh, but uh, I appreciate the, uh, the the smart answers that I get. So thanks uh, everyone, um, and we'll talk again soon. Yeah, and sweet dreams, Bill. Bye. Bye. Bye, guys. Thanks for listening or watching the Reliability Matters podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app, such as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and so many more. Also, be sure to check out my other podcasts, including the Concept to Creation podcast, where I feature conversations with entrepreneurs within the electronic assembly space, and the Innovations and Technology podcast, where we discuss innovative products within our industry. All three shows are also available in video format. Check out the Reliability Matters or Concept to Creation or Innovations in Technology podcasts on YouTube. Just search the show's name and you can find all three shows. Or go to MikeConrad.com. That's Conrad with a K. All three shows also appear there. Again, thanks for being part of my podcast family. I appreciate you being here. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay happy. And of course, keep doing it right. See you again soon. Thanks for listening to the Reliability Matters podcast. Join us on the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for new episodes of Reliability Matters.